everything happened all of a sudden. There was a protest in in Tripoli. That's all what we heard is that there will be news about a protest in in the city and it would have been safer for us not to go to school or for my parents not to go to work on that day. It's correct. Point United Nations Security Council Resolution Think. which calls for the protection of the Libyan people. Stop the violence against civilians. The intense aerial bombardment pushed them eastwards from Ras Lanouf towards the rebel-held town of Okeyla. Fiercely fought over in the past few days. The home to dozens of women and children who fled Ajdabia. <laughs> It's You can hear them zooming by in their land cruisers, firing their guns. They don't really care who they hit. Uh, they're just looking for a target. It's basically a free fall out there. Anyone they hit, they're getting paid for. The things escalated really quickly and then um, international forces were involved and then the the, all I remember was that this guy was raining bombs. An estimated 15,000 people were killed in the first Libyan civil war. Conflict erupted in February 2011, with bombings, firefights and killings raging across the North African nation for longer than eight months. Thousands of innocent civilians are thought to have been killed. Zina Safa was 16 years old in February 2011. Although Zina wasn't a Libyan citizen, she called the North African nation her home. She lived there with her mother and father, who had fled Iraq and its own devastating war a few years prior. Zina's father was an economics professor at the local university, while her mother, a civil engineer, had dedicated herself to raising Zina and her older brother. February 15, 2011, was the start of a devastating story for Libya and its people. For Zina, it was the beginning of an unimaginable journey, one of survival, courage and sacrifice. Sixteen years old. We we were all extremely scared. So every night we would 
go to bed not knowing if we were gonna wake up the next morning because we were hearing a lot of stories of people dying and, and some of our neighbors and, and friends were um, either getting attacked or or getting killed so it was it was living in terror for quite some time I don't really know how my parents had so much courage and and patience perhaps it's because of their previous experience in war but all I can remember is that they were calm the whole time and they were um they were mostly worried about my education to put things into perspective um I'm Iraqi but in the early 90s, during the war, my older brother died as a baby. And that was obviously very traumatizing for my parents. So they decided to flee the country, um, obviously with, with minimal basics, um, only the clothes that they had and, and one handbag each and go to Libya um, to wait for the situation in Iraq to get better. In Libya, that's when I was born. So it was relatively peaceful compared to where they came from and the trauma that they have been through. So just having no war was all what they were looking for. Your father worked as a university professor, didn't he? Yes, he was an economics professor. It's a pretty extraordinary capability that he had to bring himself through the Iran-Iraq war period. It was an extraordinarily uh, brutal conflict. There was a huge loss of life on both sides. Um, estimates are sort of in the millions of lives lost as opposed to the thousands of lives lost associated with that conflict. It was truly horrendous. And to imagine your parents, really a testament to them as, as people, even if ultimately it led to a great deal of hardship, I think that takes a tremendous amount of strength, even if perhaps you can look back with hindsight and say that it may not have been the best decision. But I can understand why when they came to Tripoli then it must have seemed like a, a relief and a, a respite um, at that time to have any semblance of stability. But can you, you paint us a little bit of a picture about what it was like for you as a young teenager living in Tripoli in that time? What was day-to-day -day life like? What was school like? Most days we would, um, so obviously during school days I'd go to school, come back home, do my homework and just stay at home and either go visit some friends or some friends would come visit me at my house um but otherwise during the holidays my parents would take us to um there was one swimming pool in Tripoli and we would go there almost every Friday so my parents would just um, teach me how to swim and um bike even though my parents were never well off especially after they left everything and lost everything in Iraq um, they were never well off in Libya but yet they managed to save up a little bit of money at the end of each year so that we could travel and um, and have a little holiday um, overseas so every year we would go to Jordan um, for holidays it sounds almost like an idyllic life in a way um growing up simple but idyllic both your parents well educated supportive at home um you having peace and, and them having come from such a traumatic background i imagine them feeling a lot of relief and yes yes you're going to have those times at the pool together on friday and and sort of the structure of school and being a teenager 
how did all that change in 2011? What was the first indication that you had that things were rapidly becoming different? Well, I think that they are bracing for military intervention. With the opposition taking control of the second largest city, Benghazi. Tonight, things are at a turning point. It was, it was living in terror for quite some time. Within 48 hours, everything will be finished. Our forces are almost in Benghazi. Whatever the decision, it'll be too late. During the middle of that year, it was August. So we lived through war from February to August. And during August, we got the opportunity to flee the country. Whether or not it's come in time, the UN resolution means that a no-fly zone will be established. There was a no-fly zone because obviously the country was, was in the middle of war at that time. He was as defiant when I reached him on the phone tonight as when I first met him in Tripoli last month. Nobody is in this country. We were going to go to Jordan through a university university bus. That bus ride was probably one of the scariest times of my of my life at that at that stage. After months of obviously not going out, and um, the last time I would have gone out was a regular day to school, um, driving through the city on that day was extremely scary because everything looked absolutely foreign to me. It was like a city that I've never seen before was extremely unfamiliar. There was signs of destruction everywhere, burnt cars on the streets, um, blood stains around the around the streets and the buildings, and there was signs of gunshots on everywhere and it just seemed like a zombie town. And that is why it was really scary because there was nobody outside. And so for a car to be driving around the streets just seemed extremely abnormal. You just feel like you're, you're in the wrong place and that you, know, you shouldn't be driving in here because it, there was, there was, it was lifeless. Every maybe 
three or four hours there would be like a checkpoint with of with people in it who have like massive weapons with their faces covered and they would just look through the cars and and, and ask us questions about where we're going why are we going there I would feel like the car could just get bombed and uh, I'm not being dramatic it's just because it's it, that's what it felt like at that at that stage I wanted to talk about what it felt like when your parents realized that they'd, they'd made it through that the the bus had gone through the worst and that you'd, you'd been able to get out of the country um what, what did that feel like did you notice the relief with your parents at that time did it was did it feel any different when you realized that you'd escaped from the country oh yes it felt it felt so relieving when we got when we were dropped off um at a central station in tunisia and we carried our our um you know 50 suitcases because we lived in libya for a very long time we're literally carrying yeah. our whole life um away from libya to um to jordan so it felt very very relieving i remember the first time we got in a in an actual civilian taxi in tunisia um we were I, I can't remember the exact conversation, but we, my mom was just um, talking to the taxi driver and my dad was laughing <clears throat> was laughing with him about how beautiful Tunisia is and how they would wish to, um, to stay there a little bit longer, but we have to go and continue our journey to Jordan. And um, I remember the taxi driver was offering for us to stay with him at his place and and we were just like, oh, we wish we could stay in this beautiful country, but we have a flight to catch to Jordan um, in in a few hours. So we got dropped off at the airport, and we were just extremely excited to uh, to um, go to Jordan. We were very very happy that we were out of out of Libya, and um, we got on the flight to Jordan. And I remember when it landed in Jordan, I remember saying to mom, oh, we finally arrived home sweet, to, to home sweet home. And, um, and we were, we, we spoke to one of our friends in Jordan to arrange for an apartment for us. And, and we had friends picking us, picking us up from the airport. So it was very, very exciting, especially to just see people and be in a taxi and, and be with around, you know, normal people on an airplane after spending months and months hiding and living in terror um so to have that that feeling of of normal life was absolutely amazing what happened after you landed we landed in jordan and 
we got to the border um, to the to the border checkpoints where we would um, get the passport stamped and we were not allowed in the country why was that um good question um there because you'd been there a number of times before you set on holidays and you had friends there and yes we have been we we go to jordan every year and and we have like stamps on our passports and everything but during that year we were not allowed in there because we had an iraqi passport and we came from a war zone and that is the only reason that they gave up that they gave at the airport you are iraqi and you come from a war zone and you're not allowed into the country and they were not friendly at all if anything they were extremely disrespectful this is by no means a representation of um any any country this is just the treatment we got from the few police officers at the jordanian airport um i remember when they denied our entry into the country that would have been probably the worst day of my 16 year old life because I remember those those hours at the airport. I literally felt like my dad was going to lose his life at any stage. He was he couldn't breathe properly. He couldn't talk properly. His whole body was shaking. His his fingers were shaking, um, and and I could see his veins in his forehead and and we were just being so humiliated at the airport and we got quarantined in a room until our flight would get sorted. And we had to pay for our flight back to Tunisia. Um we couldn't even we couldn't even discuss or um or argue or talk to anyone. They just said that they're going to take all of our luggage and our passports and we'll only get it if we'll only get them back in Tunisia and just seeing that our whole all of our plans <laughs> um just crushing in front of us and and us being so helpless and and we know that we're going to go back to Tunisia and not be able to enter because we don't have visa but we got the on the next flight to Tunisia and luckily that was a turkish airlines flight so it had a transit in istanbul and when we were transiting in istanbul we were trying to um talk to someone to explain our situation that we are on a flight back to tunisia but we can't go in there what do we do and we spoke to a few people and i don't want to go into too much details because again i don't want to give um a negative representation but we got scammed a few times um saying that we could find more time to to sort our things out and so we were just extremely helpless we were talking to so many people i remember at the airport um and one of the people that we spoke to um he understood what we what we were going through and he was extremely helpful in terms of he 
told us that we could actually stay in Turkey for 30 days. And he said that our passports and our and our passports are probably with the with the cabin crew. That employee helped us retrieve our passports in Istanbul and he just helped us retrieve some of our baggage. A lot of it was lost, but um at least we got some some of our suitcases um in the transit. What a beautiful human moment in the midst of all of that. Uh, exploitation that you'd received, that there was this one person that decided that they wanted to show some kindness to your family that day. Oh, yes, absolutely. I, yes, there is um, a few people along the story who have, uh, I, I, I don't know how they, how we got to meet them, but it just seemed like they were angels from above because After speaking to almost like 50 people in one day, one of them just decides to help out with with a little, little bit of kindness to just talk to someone and get them to give us our passports back. Um, and that meant the world to us on that day. We got our passports, we got some of our luggage, we went out of the airport um, in Turkey and we just we were trying to figure out what to do with our lives and to um, just add a little bit to our vulnerability, um, we our passports were expiring. Oh gosh. So we had, we had only a few weeks left on our passports. Wow, getting an Iraqi passport renewed at that time in Istanbul, that would have been a challenge. Yes, um, to say the least, <laughs> yes. So we went to the Iraqi embassy in Istanbul and we were like, we just arrived here a few days ago and we need our passports renewed and they didn't even let us in through the door. They just said, sorry, we don't do that. bye <laughs> and then we rang again <laughs> and then we were like so what do we do and they said oh you have to go back to iraq and then we just oh, said that no. we can't because it's it's honestly very not safe for for my dad and then they said well you can go to syria or somewhere where they can do the passports at the embassy And so we had no choice. We uh, got on a bus and then we went to Syria. Tell me about how your parents were coping at this point in time. What were, what were your mum and dad like at, at this stage where at every turn it seems like things were becoming more difficult and not less difficult, that there was never any relief from it. It's just this relentless uh, struggle at this point. How were they coping with that? How were they interacting with you? So, to be honest, my parents coping with this never-ending struggle was extremely inspiring because they just absorbed all of the negativity and all of the stress extremely well. And they have... They were super positive about the whole situation. So, for example, in Istanbul, my parents were 
were just every time I would feel very stressed or or have some form of anxiety they would just be like Istanbul is a beautiful place we've always wanted to come we're so glad that we finally got the chance to see it even though we had no money our passports wow. were expiring we literally didn't know what we were going to do with our lives uh, our lives were falling apart but even in the midst of the probably the most difficult times of our lives my parents were being so positive and they were they were just trying to um to make me feel like i am very privileged to be in istanbul because it's such a beautiful city and i remember i enjoyed it somehow i mean we didn't really have enough money to really experience the city but we would we stayed there for a couple of weeks and like before going to the embassy to ask after going to the embassy to ask about um our passports they were like okay so we need to find a way to go to syria but before that let's just go and and see the blue mosque it's one of the tourist attractions here so they were they were extremely Uh, absorbent of of all the negativity and they were just trying to really see the positive and and live day by day they weren't going to let an opportunity for your education to be advanced go to waste yes yes We got to Syria. It was it was fine. The drive was fine. We got to Syria. Um, we knew that it was a little bit unnatural because we were in Syria a few years before that, and it was not the same. It was still um, less civilians on the streets. Um, a lot of a lot of military around the city, um, and the. There was it was a little bit unnatural too, but it wasn't a war zone at that stage. We had one goal, and that is to renew our passports. Um, and then we get to the embassy the next day, and and we wanted to renew our passports. And then we decided that we could stay in Syria. And obviously, with all the scamming and with all the the flights and and all the overpriced things that we had to pay for we actually run out of money at that stage by the time we got to syria um we didn't really have enough money for me to go to school or to even pay for our living expenses and so my dad literally had to risk his life find a way to get um to get back into Tunisia and then find a way to get transported back into Tripoli so that he could go and um and and restart his contract and restart working Your family arrives in, I assume, Damascus, is where the embassy would have been, and your 
Mum and Dad are faced with a decision to say that we literally don't have enough money to continue this journey even if the passports are renewed. We need to find a way to, to get more funds. And your dad was willing to go back to that war zone because that was the only opportunity that he had to, to help you guys survive that. That's, that's extraordinary courage. I find it difficult to fathom that sort of decision-making to leave your family, your young daughter and your wife, to go back to that environment to make hope possible for them. What an extraordinary man. Truly, yes. Um, when my dad left to go back to Libya, um, their reasoning was, they were very positive about it, and their reasoning was he will go back to um, restart his work so that I could go to school. So a few weeks, so a few, I think a week later after he left us in, in Syria, he called us from Tripoli and he said that he managed to get back into the, into Tripoli and to get back into the university. And he found a room in a dorm, um, where it was, a, it was student accommodation, um, and he just found a way to, to stay there. It was just a small room without... It had, like, no kitchen and nothing. It was just a small room with a bed and and um, a bathroom. He would eat with the other students from... Um, like, there was there was a student canteen. He, he was living less than... On, on less than the basics. When your dad departed to go back to Tripoli... But what were those first few nights like with your just your mum and you, as you were sort of wondering about what the outcome was going to be of that, and and how did how did she comfort you in that that moment? Those days of just my mum and I in Syria were were very scary because we were extremely vulnerable. Um, our passports were expiring. We had no money. Um, we had no support. We had no friends, and it was just her and I. And what made things worse is that I mentioned earlier that by the time we arrived in Syria, there was some so, some form of political instability. But things escalated quickly, just like how they always do during wars. And after a few weeks, Things were becoming more and more extreme in in the streets. On Fridays, there will be the Friday protests. Um, after the Friday prayers, and you would and you would hear gunshots, and you wouldn't be able to leave the house for a few days. So I remember I used to look out the window, and um, we we lived in like the second or third floor so i'd look down the window on the streets and there would be like protests there would be like hundreds of people walking down the streets and then in the next few minutes you would just see people like running back and then police running after them and there would be gunshots and then an hour later it would be like dead silence in the street and then there would be like blood stains everywhere obviously with our vulnerability we were just waiting for our passports 
and the embassy stopped working because the situation was getting very extreme and we would go to the embassy every morning one weekend or sometimes if it's too unsafe we would um call the embassy every day i think there was a problem in the in the internet or the system in the in the embassy so the only issue was that the fingerprint couldn't be transported to to iraq one time another another angel sent from sky one time we were at the embassy door just like how my mom and i would go every day and just wait for someone to pass by and there was a person who was going into the embassy and we just explained to him about our situation and and how um desperately we need our our passports and everything and he just really empathized with us um, because our stay in Syria was also not unlimited. We only had a f- like a month or two of, um, of visitor visas. So even our stay would have been, would have been getting expired by that stage. And I was losing a lot of time with my education. Um, so he really empathized with our situation. We just told him that we really need to leave the country as soon as possible. And that is just me and my mom there. And um, he went inside and, and literally got our passports for us. Wow. After weeks and weeks and weeks of waiting outside. Yes, yes. Um, and those weeks were extremely difficult. Like my passport photo was of me crying. Oh. Um, oh, yes. So every time I use my password, I just remember. <laughs> I look at the photo; it's just me crying. Um, it was. It was really. It was really intense. Oh, those passports, when we had them in our hands, they were extremely priceless. They were like our way into freedom. Our only way, these two, you know, booklets are our keys to freedom, (laughs) to the future. We called my brother and we were like, we got our passports now and, and we don't know where, where to go. We, should we go back to Iraq and just risk it? My dad wouldn't be with us, so it would be a little bit of a challenge or what do we do? Um, and then the only other country that would give us visa was um, Malaysia. Thank <laughs> you. 
I remember when we first got to Malaysia, my mom and I, it was just her and I, and it was, we were in this new, amazing country that we've never seen before. Everything was just so foreign, and, and all the lights, and the cars, and the train, and, and the big screens, and the skyscrapers, everything was so magnificent. Living in Libya was very basic. So we didn't have like a train. We didn't have um, like big screens or, or, or big buildings. So it was a bit of a culture shock, but we had one reason to be there and that is for my education. So we arrived in Malaysia. The next day we went to um, the school that my brother recommended. And um, it was a very, very selective school. Um, I had to do a few tests, like an English test, math, science, all that. I had to do an interview. And I had, I, I did know English at that stage, but my English was extremely basic. And my education was very basic. So to go to a selective school and having to do exams after after literally escaping war and and not studying for months. Now I was studying during during the war in Libya, but that was before all the trauma and all the trouble that we had to go through. Um so to actually try to refocus my brain and be able to solve mathematical problems and, and answer science questions and write an essay was was pretty challenging. Um, but that was that was it. I it was months and months of months of me just trying to get back to school. And now I'm in this school. I'm doing my entrance exam and I'm not leaving until I'm admitted. <laughs> and I remember during the interview, I remember I was extremely passionate um, with my broken English and my very heavy accent. And after probably, you know, all the jet lag <laughs> and um, having like probably no sleep at all, I was just telling the lady that was interviewing me, I was like, I really have to be accepted into this school. I'm not, I can't leave if I'm not accepted. I was like, I've come a very long way to come to school here and I will really not let you down. I will do whatever it takes <laughs> to succeed. This is my only chance to getting education. and. I really, really want this chance. Your mum and dad must have been so proud of you during that interview. <laughs> um, I don't think they know that I said that. <laughs> they, I never told them. <laughs> I can only imagine how excited your parents must have been at that moment, that, that culmination of so much hardship. 
um, and all of those promises that they'd made as well to you along the journey that there was going to be that hope there and that your education was waiting at the end of it all and to to see you finally realize some of that to, to get that opportunity I, I imagine that just must have been the most wonderful feeling in the world Yes, it was the most wonderful feeling of the world until I actually started attending classes. <laughs> I realized that I have no idea what everyone's talking about. I remember I was sitting in the English class and I just could not understand what the teacher was saying. I could not understand what the students were talking about and... I didn't know what I had to do. They, I remember the first day the teacher told everyone to write a narrative essay. And I had no idea what narrative meant. And I had no idea what to write. And I had no idea what to ask. And everyone was just doing their own thing because obviously it was in the middle of the year. Everyone was just on the ball. and That's a pretty advanced English class when you start with narrative essays. Oh, yes, it was very advanced, and my English was extremely basic, so I didn't even know what to ask. Grade 10 is pretty advanced. It was high school. It was pretty advanced, and my grade 9, 8, and 7 were very basic, and the scariest thing, realizing that my parents have sacrificed everything and I don't know what people are talking about in class. What what do I go back home and tell mom that I can't do this? Or that this is too difficult for me? Or do I just give up? I didn't know what to do. Um, I had to really not just study hard but go back and, and learn all the basics and know what to study in the first place just before my final exams I, I was really I was actually doing pretty well compared to when I first started a year and a half um, in the beginning, I was doing, I was doing okay. Um, started like getting better and better marks, and um, especially in subjects that didn't really require English, like maths and science. Um, I I kind of got the hang of it after a year or a year and a half. Um, but during my uh, my study break so just before my very very final exams so those were the exams that I was studying a year and a half for those were the final exams for high school just before the exam started my mom was um, diagnosed with a, a, health, a health issue um, I don't want to go into too much details about her personal um, um, health problem, but it had something to do with cancer. So it was very urgent and she had, and she needed to get a surgery done, um, very urgently. So that surgery was scheduled on the week before my exams. So we did her surgery and at that stage I was 
obviously I had an exam that I have given everything for and my parents have sacrificed everything for these final exams. These are the exams that I would graduate with and these are the marks that would determine my future. But at the same time, my mom was in hospital and you know because i because there was no interpreting services in in malaysia so i was the one signing all the papers and translating everything to her and it's even like simple things when before they give you the ga you have to sign a paper that all of these complications could occur and i have to translate everything for her and i could be like mom you know you might die you might have uh, you know um, paralysis for the rest of your lives. And, and these things, it was just really traumatizing, um, at that time. And exams just seemed a little bit insignificant for me. Um, when, when I was, especially when I was waiting for my mom outside the surgery theater and I was just completely alone and no one had any idea. Um, and and just like rethinking about all those complications that I just that I that my mom has just signed that what if she doesn't come out of that surgery who who am I gonna tell what do I do thankfully my mom did the surgery and everything went well and then a few days later I went and did my exams um it was very challenging but i didn't really care i ended up just doing the exams for the sake of doing the exams my mentality really changed about marks and all of that and i'm very again i'm very grateful that my mom was just like just go and do your exams whatever you get is gonna be okay um so thankfully i did the exams and a few months later, like a month or two later, um, when the results came out, I ended up doing extremely well. And I actually got a 100% scholarship for college. That was the, the best thing that has ever happened to me in those 17 years of me living. What was it like talking to your dad after that moment? I, I couldn't really believe it. Um, it was the happiest news that we would have received in a very long time. However, even though the surgery was successful and all the margins were were clear, um, her review showed that there were new signs of abnormality and that she needed to get a bigger surgery and again as soon as possible. And the bigger surgery was... Um, a lot more expensive and it could you know there is a chance of her having to do chemotherapy and 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 radiotherapy and financially we couldn't really afford it we didn't have medical insurance at that stage so everything we were paying it was just um, um, international medical fees which were extremely overpriced 
So we needed to um, ask my dad for help. So my mom called dad to tell him about the situation and to get the financial um, support that we needed. And after after the phone call, um, my dad just disappeared. And we tried calling him again and again for hours and hours and he just wasn't there and it was very abnormal because we would call every day at the same time and we kind of knew his schedule and he had nowhere to go so it was very abnormal that my dad wasn't picking up. A few hours later we came to know that he was in the ICU. He had a stroke. We don't know how he was found, but one of the students who lived in, um, in the same um, in the same building as him found him either on the floor or he did not f he did not see him for dinner so he went to ask about him and he found him in his room the hospital was partially functioning at that stage because of the war and, and the lack of resources and the lack of stuff um, and also my dad's stroke was too complicated for them to deal with because it was uh, a stroke that led to bleeding so Obviously, the medication to um, reduce the stroke would increase the bleeding, and the medication to reduce the bleeding would increase the severity of the stroke. So it was very difficult for them to help him. Um, and we tried to get him to Malaysia to speak, to be with us but it was also very challenging because the airlines wouldn't let him with his high blood pressure and his medical condition be on a flight but because his situation was extremely severe and they didn't know how to deal with it um they probably thought that it's better for him to spend his last few days with his family or something so it was more of a sympathetic um, approach that they allowed him to go on a flight and uh, and come to Malaysia. When I when I was very very excited to see my dad after a very long time and and and. Um, and I really, like, missed him so much. Um, he would come and visit us in Malaysia. I think he came to visit us twice, so we did see him after Syria. But they were very short visits, and um, it was a very long time before I had seen him um, when he had the stroke. Um, when my dad was coming out of the arrivals door, 
I was I was very very excited to see him especially after all the difficulty that my mom and I had to go through alone we were very uh, in need of his support and his presence but when he came through the arrivals door I just I, I kind of feel guilty saying this but I a part of me didn't really want to believe that that was my dad Obviously, I anticipated happiness upon seeing him, but actually it was, it was real sadness. My dad was the person that we would get support from emotionally and to see him on a wheelchair and not even able to support himself was very sad. Your dad had been a heroic figure throughout your life, uh, sort of this font of strength, really, like the man who was able to take himself away from his family in Istanbul back to the war zone of Tripoli to, to support you and, and then be that constant voice despite his own seclusion and I imagine his loneliness as well. He's such an indomitable figure and, of course, the probably the greatest tragedy of strokes is that it steals people's personality from them. It, it takes away their capacity, of course, to, to be that person that they'd previously been and, and they have to find a new normal, um, depending on the severity of it. And uh, I, I can only imagine what it must have been like for both him and you at that moment when you had that moment to be together, but it was under such difficult circumstances and such changed circumstances, particularly with what he'd d done before that. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So... Um, I tried to, um, to smile and, 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 and act happy that I saw him, but part of me wanted to just actually wait for my real dad to come through the arrivals door because my dad was, he didn't even seem familiar. Um, I knew his face, but I, also didn't know him at the same time because he was so pale he was very skinny it seemed like he was like skin he, he only had skin on his skeleton and he couldn't he was on a wheelchair supported by some cabin crew um and it was very clear that he was going through a very very difficult time and um and and i realized that my dad he can't support us and can't support himself and now we have to somehow support each other in that moment where your parents had been supporting you for so long in, in so many ways through that formative time that that responsibility of realizing that you were now going to play a part of that role for them as well i imagine how, how did you adjust to that how, how did uh, you you came from such an incredible strength in in your parents. I'm sure that was in you too. But how did you come to terms with that, and how did you approach that in, in that first little bit as your your whole family was together, but under such different circumstances? Um, I was really scared the whole time, 
and I was scared of the future. I was scared of... I just felt the whole time that that nobody should be going through that. Basically, it's hard for me to answer this question because when life got really, really difficult, I don't know what I was feeling, but my... All of my emotions were were non-existent. I was in a function mode. If I was to feel anything, it would be feeling of fear, feeling of of despair and feeling of hopelessness. And I couldn't let that control me. I had doctor's appointments for my father that I had to go through, and then I had to go to my to my mom, mom's doctor's appointments, and then we had to make food and um and get my medica- get medication for father and get medication for mom and and do this and do that and um do my college application process and count how much money we have and how much can we afford and whether we'll be able to afford rent next month so it was like a lot of difficulties which made me really force myself to suppress any emotion and any feeling throughout the adversities we had in life my parents have always been the supporting figures but when they couldn't even support themselves i that was the time when i felt extremely weak i could not even have feelings of happiness. I felt too guilty to be happy that I got a scholarship because it just seemed very selfish of me to be happy about my uh, my achievements when both of my parents are fighting death. Um, so I couldn't even bring that up. I couldn't. I couldn't really um, think about that. If anything, I was feeling like I really shouldn't be going to college. My college was going to start a few months after that, but my my future was kind of skewered, but my parents' visa was expiring. Again, this is the expiring visa is going to be a recurring um, thing <laughs> throughout this story because <laughs> we were always foreigners and we never had a home, so there's always expiring visa. Um and the money finishing is also another recurring thing throughout the story. So we had very limited finance at that stage. Um, my dad was able to get us enough money to uh, to do my mom's surgery um, and to get the medication for him, but obviously it was very limited and he and he was too sick to go back to work. Um, so we didn't really have any income for the future. So they were both fighting death. Um, they had no money. Um, they had no visa and it just see, just seemed like we were in, there was no hope. There was nothing that they could do. 
and um and sometimes they would mention about them going back to Iraq and just leaving everything and risking their lives and even though it would have been extremely dangerous for them and with their medical conditions they would going back to Iraq every time they mention it I would hear it as them going and never coming back and I can't, I couldn't let that happen. If anything, I would go with them. I'd give up the scholarship, I'd give up my future, and I'd just go with them. And that would just end up in a in a never-ending argument. Do, do you think in those conversations where they were talking about going back to Iraq, do you think was that there was a part of their mind that wanted to give you that opportunity again, that they could see that what was happening was was having an impact on you, your education and, and where they'd wanted you to be able to go in your life and that that was their way of trying to, uh, one last time, give you that chance. And obviously you weren't ever going to accept that. But do you think that was where it was coming from when they were having those conversations or was it just simply there was no other options on the table? There was no other option for them. And, they, and I know that they would have never wanted me to go back to Iraq, especially not after getting such a, such a rare opportunity, um, for college, but they had no option. And, um, it wasn't even giving up because they weren't giving up anything. They were just, they were just, they were, that was their only option. brother who was who would have been um doing his equivalency exams and all that he would have just passed his medical exams and he was able to get a job um as a doctor and thankfully he was able to arrange for us to get a visa to australia That day, I remember when when we got the call knowing that our visa got accepted, we just felt this extraordinary feeling of freedom that finally there is an escape. It's, it is a black hole, but there is an escape now. Again, I mean, I did feel that extraordinary feeling of escape, but there was no time for feelings or emotions. Let's just get our flights because my parents' visas are expiring in in a week, and we we just packed everything up and and came to Australia and and yeah. Well, you were you were flying away from your opportunity in a way, weren't you? There was an escape to come to Australia. There was that relief, but. You were giving up the scholarship that you'd worked so hard for and that you'd put in so much effort for and that your family had sacrificed so much for. There was a cost 
to that escape, a very real one for you in your future and, and I imagine for your parents as well. Yes, so giving up the that scholarship and, and that opportunity, which was the biggest and only one opportunity that I had at that time, and coming to Australia was a very big risk because for me personally, I didn't know what Australia was and I didn't know if I'll ever be able to have any opportunity here. When we came here, we came as visitor visa on visitor visa, and um, and after after it was expiring, my parents obviously we we applied for refugee visa because there was no way for my parents to go back to Iraq. There, this was they were like clinging to the last remnants of life here, um, but at the same time, we obviously you know, having gone through what we had gone through, we didn't have any expectations and we were ready to, you know, just be deported again. Um, but thankfully, after my dad has explained the situation to um, to the government and we were able to get refugee visa, um, in the in the same month that our our permanent residency got approved i just i was able to um to get my life together so that year when we first arrived here it was a few it was a few days of just really feeling um feeling content and happy about being with my mom and dad and brother all healthy and and in a safe country. I just want to make a comment there about that that approval because I'm I'm really grateful and I'm proud of the fact that the Australian government was able to provide that and and that they were able to see both the sense and the humanity in that, in that decision but of course we know that Australia has a a tremendous shame on its hands in terms of the way that it's handled refugees over the last decade or two um, and that in some ways we have become accustomed to people seeking refugee status as being dehumanized um, as being the the pawns in a game of trafficking um, that needs to be addressed or being a risk to the country or, or in some way um, not being worthy of treatment as, as individuals and as cases and, and as stories in and of themselves. And I think that if there's one thing that I would hope that people were able to take from our conversation is that there is such a story um, of courage and resilience and, and sacrifice involved in so many people um, who, who seek that status in our country. And it can be so easy to oversee that when it's just a news report or it's just a number or it's just uh, you know one line in a newspaper or, or an article. Um, and, and I'm, I'm grateful that through your story perhaps we're able to reach some more people with that message because i think it's one that particularly in this country particularly over the last 10 years we've we've lost sight of yeah absolutely our time here when before our um permanent residency got approved so it wasn't very difficult compared to all the other struggles that refugees have to go through but that just makes me realize about the that just makes me realize the magnitude of suffering that asylum seekers have to go through um because my 
suffering is insignificant compared to the refugee crisis that is happening in Australia and around the world, but yet it had such a massive impact in my life. Um, and I really hope that I can raise awareness about, about those crises. Um, and that is partly why I'm sharing my story as well. It was very difficult for us to plan anything for the future or to have hope or to have some sort of something to look forward to. It's like if we were in jail or in prison, we would be either accepting the fact that we're there forever or counting down the days that we were going to leave. But to just be waiting for something and not knowing if it will ever be accepted or not, it might take 5, 10, 20 years. It was very hard because you don't know how long you're going to wait. Well, living in that uncertainty you know, is, is such a purgatory, isn't it? You know, you, you, particularly when you're not allowed to work because you don't have a working visa. You don't know if you're going to get permanent residency or, or a visa that will last for education purposes. And of course, your, your parents living under the constant threat of having to return to Iraq, a country in which they would not be welcome and certainly not be safe. Um, uh, I'm, not, I'm not sure really how you, how you can do anything else except... Um, feel extraordinary suffering in, in that moment, in that place, regardless of the safety that you might feel in your, in your physical sense when you've got that hanging over your heads for a 12-month period. That's an eternity when that's the state of mind that that you're in. It was very hard for me to um, to know that I might have given up my scholarship and I might never be able to get any kind of education anymore. And my parents have sacrificed everything again and instilled in me the value of education. I'm here in a safe country, but again, I can't really study. I can't, I don't have access to education. I don't have access to, to anything, basically. I can't work. I can't study. Um, I can't continue my life. I think there is like that Maslow's hierarchy of needs where, you know, you have the shelter and the food and everything. And we had that here. And we didn't have safety before. So we were grateful for the safety. But again, I didn't really have education and I didn't really have a future to look forward to. And that was very debilitating for me mentally. I thought I should be grateful to be here. I should be grateful I'm in a safe country. There's no bombs. We have electricity. We have water. Why am I feeling this way? And... Part of it, again, also my parents didn't really know how to deal with that. And the only thing that I was, that I could do was to go to a library and, and I realized that I could actually go to a library every single day and just stay there for the whole day and just read books. Um, and that was to uh, mainly escape my life, to escape my reality. And I realized that if I had a membership, I could take the books back home. Um, I don't know how I realized that. I think one of the ladies said that I could do that because she saw me at the library too many times or something like that. I can't remember. And I was so shocked. I was like, you mean 
I can actually take these books back home? What if I don't return them? And she was like, they explained the rules to me and everything. And I signed up for a membership and I was just like reading books all day, every day. And then I wanted to do something a little bit more than just reading. So I started doing some free work around town. I just went to every retail shop, every medical center, every dental clinic. And I was like, can I just come and just help you out for free? <laughs> um, can I volunteer? And um, one of the dental clinics said that I could go and, and like, you know, help them out on weekends. And so I did that. And at the end of the year, our permanent residency got approved. And that is when things started getting better. So I just put in my CV that I have uh, unpaid work experience in a dental office. And then in the same month, so our visa got ex got accepted at the end of 2014. Um, and in the same month, I just got a job as a dental assistant. And then I got accepted to do, um, to do like a bridging course that would allow me to get into university in Australia because I didn't do high school here. So I did like foundation, a foundation course um, for a couple of months. And then I was studying full time. I started Bachelor of Medical Science in Sydney. Then I was working as well as a dental assistant. Zena, when you walked into college and you were doing a Bachelor of Medical Science, what, what was that experience like, realizing that you had a home, you didn't have to go anywhere, that the visa wasn't about to expire, and you were about to sit into a university lecture for the first time? It was... Uh, I remember it was... Like, it wasn't like happy, it was more than happy, it was content, it was that feeling of security that this is, this is it, this is my opportunity, and this is my home, and it was really hard to, it was really hard to believe, it was almost too good to believe. Zina, you have such an extraordinary story. Your family has such an extraordinary story. And I feel so grateful um, that you've trusted uh, me and trusted this, um, this podcast to share it. Um, it's, it's truly uh, a story that I think needs to be heard. And I think there are many, many people uh, who will gain such wisdom from it, such strength from it, and hopefully a, a new understanding, perhaps of a background and uh, experience that I imagine will be quite foreign to many of them, um, but, but I think ultimately it will have a lasting impact. And I hope that in a small way that by spreading that message, 
and um, and by being a conduit to people of, of your experience, we can help to uh, to give the struggle of your family and your parents and yourself and, and your brother uh, uh, in a very small way some more meaning um, and, and make that a valuable, lasting experience for for other people, um, so that they can be inspired in the same way that I have been by by the example that you've all set. So thank you for your time tonight.